Previously on Discover the Word, we were having a conversation with author and New Testament scholar Randy Richards about what the process of letter writing in the first century was like and how different it was for the Apostle Paul to write a letter than we might think. Most of us imagine Paul writing like our grandfather would have written a letter. Hmm. You sit down at a desk, now we give him a candle, and what I like to say is pretty much everything about that image is wrong. And so in part two of that conversation, we're going to continue to talk about Paul the letter writer with Randy Richards as he helps us understand some of the things that were likely involved in the process of putting together the letters that are now part of our New Testament. And I think we'll discover a bunch more ways that reading the epistles through a first century Eastern culture lens, rather than just with our 21st century Western culture eyes, can keep us from misunderstanding these important parts of the inspired scriptures. Most ancient people didn't travel because they were afraid. And they were afraid for really good reasons. Right. Sure. So, you know, we'll say, well, Paul's letters were long. Paul's letters were unbelievably long. Any manuscript we have of Paul's letters has a collected set. We don't have a single manuscript that's just one letter. Hmm. More with Randy Richards about Paul, the letter writer, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Around the table with you for part two of this study called Paul the Letter Writer are Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, and Daniel Ryan Day, along with an expert on this subject, our friend Randy Richards. Randy is currently the research professor of New Testament at Palm Beach Atlantic University, having recently stepped down from being provost after 16 years in administration. Uh, He's been teaching since 1986, originally at a state university and then abroad at a seminary in Indonesia. He's also been at a couple of other Christian universities back here in the States before landing at Palm Beach Atlantic in 2006. He's authored, co-authored, and edited nearly a dozen books. And one of those books is called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. And so we're having some fascinating conversations with him about this subject of being aware of the differences in the ways we normally think about writing a letter and the way it was back at the time when those New Testament letters were written, because things have changed, obviously. But then again, letter writing has changed a lot just in recent history, hasn't it? So let's pick up this conversation the group is having with Randy Richards. Daniel was mentioning he still gets letters from his grandmother, but now they're texts. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But at least properly punctuated Yes, But we talked before that (laughs) Paul, when we imagine Paul as a letter writer, though, we put Paul at a desk, even though ancients Mm -hmm. didn't have desks. By the way, when desks were invented, people thought this is a great idea and they have stuck (laughs) from then on. But in antiquity, (laughs) they didn't have it. Um, They used secretaries. A secretary would sit on the floor, kind of cross-legged, stretch the toga tight between his knees to make a little bit of a writing surface and would have wax tablets and just be writing away. So we still, though, imagine it's Paul in a room by himself writing. And we've talked for a little while about how it was Paul with his team writing with a secretary 
writing furiously, scribbling. It would go through multiple edits until Paul was completely happy. And also, it really turned a letter into a book. And we'll talk later about how all that worked. But I wanted first to mention, what is this writing in multiple sessions like? Well, to some extent, when they actually are going to put the letter down, and actually, we're going to write a letter, I think they would pick a time of the year when they would be more stationary. The secretary would come probably by mid-morning or something and stay until early afternoon when the sun started going down a little bit. By then, he'd be pretty exhausted and would come back multiple times. But the writing process actually would have began earlier. As Paul would be preaching and teaching, he would be responding to topics, thinking about issues. And also, one of his mission techniques... He would have a patron or a patroness, actually it's more commonly a patroness, uh, Luke would mention in Acts, and they converted, quote, not a few prominent women, end quote. Mm. And then usually that's when the trouble would start in Acts. What do you mean? Are you connecting the trouble to women? No. Okay, just (laughs) Actually, I'm I'm connecting it to the kinds of women that he converted. These were patronesses, basically. So it's the old joke in the preachers among us would know, we don't mind you stealing sheep so long as you don't steal the tithers. And the problem was Paul was converting these patrons Ah. who had been supporting the work of the synagogue. And Luke points that out deliberately. Mm. And that's where some of the hostility Mm. came. But when they would become a patroness or a patron, if it was a guy, of Paul, they would invite him into their extended household that we talked about. One of the things they would do, it was very common to host a dinner party if you had means. Well, if you had a guest in town that you were hosting, you, in a sense, would kind of show off your guest and, in a sense, show yourself off as the kind of person Mm. that this wise one would want to stay with. And so you would host a dinner, and then in the dinner, you would ask your guest to speak. So the guest would be the after-dinner entertainment. (laughs) We see that in Cicero. They would say, oh, read us a part of something that you're writing. And so Cicero would read part of a letter that he was doing. Hmm. So we think this was Paul's way of commonly spreading the gospel. It also tended to spread it with prominent people, as well as everyone in the extended household would be listening as well. We imagine these dinner parties, close the doors, everything else. No, the windows would be open. People would be standing outside listening. Everybody that could get within sound of the voice would hear what's being said and done. So Paul would recite this material, and it would give him a way to refine his arguments, think about how he wanted to do it. They would ask a question. He'd respond and think, I need a better text for that. Well, he can't mm-hmm. look it up on his phone. He would go <laughs> and he would have books with excerpts out of Old Testament scripture mm-hmm. that he would look through as well. And so that's how he would begin to incorporate scripture into his arguments. Mm-hmm. We we're actually blessed that in one of his first letters, probably the first letter in Galatians, Paul makes an argument about how Abraham was credited righteous before circumcision. But the text that Paul quotes is actually a text that's after the sign of circumcision is given. Well, his point was, in the story, Abraham's already been chosen before there was ever circumcision. Mm-hmm. But someone along the way probably pointed out, wait a minute. Technically. You know, technically <laughs> like this. So when Paul does the argument again in Romans... Paul quotes the promise that God would give him a son, and that text is before circumcision. So Paul has refined the yeah. argument, not changed the argument, not Still done any of that. The same He's point. just making the same point validly, but just 
refining the argument some. There are other places where Paul is using material that he's probably worked on before and that he has then, the end of First Thessalonians has a little list of do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That was very common in marketplace preaching. They called it a, a tapas, which means a place. It's a place that you went back to that was memorized and you just recited the stuff off. This whole conversation is just reminding me of the process comedians go through as they <laughs> test out different material. And with this group, everybody laughed. Oh, I'm going to use that. And then uh-huh. they go to the next dinner party and they try it and nobody laughs. They're like, okay, that <laughs> one's not going to work universally. And of yeah. course, we see them on their Netflix special and think everything they say is golden. Yeah. But that's when you and, hear the backstory and the pauses are intentional uh, and every phrase is intentional and the buildup is intentional uh, and they've tested. Yeah. They know it's going to work uh, before they hit the stage. I need to have Daniel co-write my next book. <laughs> <laughs> because that's exactly what would happen. Paul would be trying these things out. Some of the arguments he no doubt tried were too technical. His listeners didn't know enough mm. of the scriptures to be able to follow what he was arguing. So you'd think, okay, I'm not going to use that. So what we find in 1 Thessalonians or find in 1 Corinthians is a pretty refined Mm -hmm. argument. Now, not everything in 1 Corinthians was worked on in advance. Some of it is, it's a letter. So he says in 1 Corinthians, now concerning the things you wrote about. And so then he goes through and answers the questions. Mm -hmm. He even uses a certain phrase that we find in Cicero when he's responding to his brother. He says, concerning the things you wrote me in your letter, first this and then this. And so Paul is responding to questions they've asked. And that's important for us to keep in mind. It is a letter. So Paul talks about, should you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol? Well, first off, we think, well, why in the world would you go down to the supermarket and find the section that says meat sacrifice meat. to idol? Yeah, idol meat right over here. Is oh, that I freezer want some or of that? is that fresh? Gives <laughs> the meaning to piggly wiggly. Yeah. Is it organic but, or no? Yeah. yeah. But in antiquity, the butcher shops were part of a temple yeah. because they would mm-hmm. offer sacrifices. The priests would get a portion of the animal. Well, Interestingly enough, next to temples were dining facilities. So if you were doing a wedding for your daughter, the wedding would be in honor of Isis or Dionysus, some god or goddess, okay? And then it would be hosted at their place. Well, a lot of times, for a lot of people, this was just you were renting a dining hall. And that's what Paul means when he says, if people don't make a big deal of this, then don't worry about the mm-hmm. idol meat. But if someone says this was sacrificed to the goddess, then you can't eat of it. For some people, it really was worshiping mm-hmm. the goddess to be there. Others, it was just, you have to rent a place. Yeah. But we say, well, wait a minute. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he had already spent a year and a half in Corinth. Why in the world did this question not come up I mean, a year and a half is the sort of thing that might come up. Well, what we've discovered archaeologically is that after Paul left Corinth, the Jewish meat market was closed Hmm. for tension between the Roman government and the Jews. So they shut it down. Well, Christians who were worried about eating meat sacrificed Hmm. to idols could go buy their meat at the Jewish meat market. So you had a source of kosher meat or meat that was not idol meat. Well, once the market is closed down, now what are you going to do? Well, some Corinthians said, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, the gods aren't really gods. So don't worry about it. Just give thanks to God and eat mm-hmm. it. Others said, man, you're dining with demons when you do this. And so we have in the second letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to them and he says, look, those who aren't troubled by this, 
just give thanks to God for the meat and eat it. But it really depends on the end what the issue is of the heart. Pastors have dealt with this before. People say, well, should you do this or do that? And we say, well, it depends. It depends on what? It depends on the heart of the mm-hmm. of yeah. the person. That's actually the Christian message. It really depends or on should the heart. Be. Should be. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I'm really resonating with the way you're describing this whole refining process because like the rest of us here at the table, I've had the opportunity to write some books. And the books that were the easiest ones to write were on material that I've preached multiple times. And the more you work that material, the more precise it becomes, the more clean, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And those books, it almost felt like they wrote themselves. Now, when they would come to me and say, hey, we want you to write a book on worry. Yeah. I'm a I'm an expert on the subject. <laughs> right. not right about yeah, in it, fact, know. I'm worrying about it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, you know, that's a whole different process than when you're working with material that you are extremely comfortable and familiar mm-hmm. with. And if they would ask you questions, it makes it even better. Mm-hmm. And that's what we find in the Corinthian letter. They were asking him questions. Now, we commonly point out, wow, the church in Corinth is a mess. Look at the kinds of problems they were dealing with. Well, what's interesting is the Greek philosophers and Roman philosophers were beginning to complain about misbehaviors at these dinner parties. They were starting to get out of hand, and the kinds of problems they commonly described were the same problems we find the Corinthian church dealing with. So what was happening was these patrons, or patronesses, either one, were were the host where the church was meeting. Well, in hosting the church, the problem is they would squeeze church kind of into the model of the dinner party and which is a common problem even today we keep making christianity fit into our current culture so what happened was they were bringing the dinner party culture into their church in all kinds Mm -hmm. of subtle ways a woman wore a marriage veil out in public but in her own house she did not so is church a public meeting or is it her private dinner party And Paul says, it's a public meeting. Put your veil on. Now, that was their cultural thing. Paul was not that concerned. Today, he wouldn't care. Nobody's wearing head coverings. But what he was saying is, you're treating church like your private party. And several of the problems happening in Corinth Mm -hmm. were they were treating church like a private party. Like their celebration of communion, Mm -hmm. where they would have these separate groups that would like break off and... Or they'd eat everything before those who were poor right. got there or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they yeah. would be uh, a, a Slaves got off at five. And so if you didn't want to provide meat for all of them, you would serve the meat at 4.30 or so and have all the meat gone before the poor people, the servants got there. So it's a problem even today where we try to squeeze Christianity into the culture mold today. So Paul's word to the Romans, stop letting the world squeeze you into its mold, is still a word today. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Discover the Word with uh, Lisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and our special guest, Randy Richards. And just getting started on part two of the podcast called Paul, the Letter Writer. And we're so grateful that Randy has joined the team again for a second hour of conversations to share what he's learned in his research on first century letter writing. I know I'm learning a lot by being part of these conversations, and I hope they're also helping you better understand the letters, especially the Pauline epistles that are part of our New Testament. So are you a big traveler, you know, by car or RV, by plane or by train, by cruise ship or 
on your bicycle. And have you ever had to change your travel plans because of bad weather? Well, in the next part of this conversation, they're going to talk about how travel, and often the weather, had an impact on Paul's letter writing. We'll pick up that thought after a word about Randy's recent book on New Testament-era letter writing. Now, before we get any further into this episode, I'd like to encourage you to check out Randy's book on this subject of what letter writing was like back in the first century. Randy is so right when he says that we impose our more contemporary assumptions about what it was like onto these letters. And often, as Randy has said, pretty much everything about that is wrong. It was just such a different time and culture. And so his research and insight are really valuable in helping us not misunderstand these sections of Scripture because we're reading through our strictly 21st century Western lenses. The book is called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. We have a link on our website this week, and you can also find it on lots of online booksellers. I glanced at the table of contents of the book and was impressed by the fact that there are even more aspects of this than we'll be able to introduce you to on the podcast, but that are really crucial to the process. It's just a more in-depth treatment of what it is. And so I'd encourage you to get a copy of Paul and New Testament letter writing by our friend E. Randolph Randy Richards. Look for the link on our discovertheword.org website or search for it on any of the online booksellers. And now, I think you'll be surprised by all the ways that travel entered into the how and when and really the entire process of writing a letter in the first century. Well, in talking with you, most of you traveled. Bill, you had an adventure getting here. Yeah, I had an adventure getting here to Grand Rapids because for one of the very few times of my traveling life, both flights left early and arrived early. And that's <laughs> really unusual, especially <laughs> post-COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Record-breaking. Yeah, you know, when, whenever you bring up these kinds of topics about traveling and the challenges, I mean, yeah, I've been delayed a lot. I've been rerouted a lot. I've had to stay in odd hotels that I didn't plan on, etc. But every time I think about real travail in travel, I think about moms with little kids. I mean, uh-huh. even just, you know, yesterday as I was flying <laughs> in, exactly. And there was a mom with a baby and, you know, the baby always cries. And I think, do they know about their ears? And, do, you know, you don't want to go home. Oh, do you know you need to give your baby a pacifier now? You know, it's just, and that doesn't always work. And then the the dad don't know what to do and they're trying to help. And Oh, I just think of the, the, just the stress of it all. So many of us travel a lot Mm -hmm. that we just think of the world as a very mobile Mm -hmm. uh, world, but not everybody travels. Not everybody travels today. Uh, I have a sister who just wouldn't go anywhere if she had to fly because she was scared of flying. Mm. So she just wouldn't do it. And uh, as opposed to that, my mom, you tell her, hey, tomorrow we're leaving for Austria. She's on the plane. (laughs) She she didn't care. She would go anywhere. So let's, let's... Talk about your poor sister here. I don't want to use her for it. But she wouldn't travel because she was afraid of flying. Her range was limited by the car. Well, let's take that and say, well, what if her range was limited by walking? How far you could walk? Most ancient people didn't travel because they were afraid. And they were afraid for really good reasons. Um, The Mediterranean and uh, Paul's world was all circling around the Mediterranean. The weather was pretty good, actually. But the Mediterranean was filled with pirates 
And so you didn't really travel until Rome came along. Rome tamed the Mediterranean for a few hundred years, and then it went back to piracy again. (laughs) But the joke was Rome turned it into a lake. So suddenly people could travel around Hmm. the Mediterranean because Rome took care of the pirates. The roads, which were filled with bandits, think about Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan. Travelers would stay in bands. So if you were a traveler, the normal walk was 20 miles was generally the walk. You would go to the marketplace first thing in the morning because you would want to buy supplies for lunch. And you're also gathering. That's where everybody else is. And so once everybody had gotten their supplies, you would leave as a group for safety reasons and travel as a group. Like I said, 20 miles was a normal way. Rome tried to build cities along the way so that you could spend the night somewhere. That's why hospitality was Mm -hmm. so important. And then the next morning you could start out again. When you got further from Rome, they started stretching the distance to more like 30 miles. So Paul commonly traveled 30 miles in a day. He'd try to start in a city and arrive back in a city. So that is the way antiquity Hmm. traveled. The problem was in the Mediterranean, the weather, you got rains. My students, when they give landmarks to get somewhere, they talk about the where the Ikea is or the McDonald's <laughs> or that sort of thing. My grandmother would say, go across three creeks mm-hmm. and then you'll follow the tree line. Well, she would notice creeks because you got your shoes wet. You had to wade mm-hmm. through. My students never notice rivers because you zip across them on a bridge and you don't even notice that there was a, yeah. a river there. Well, in antiquity, when that river floods, you're not going anywhere until the water recedes. So there was a season, what we call winter time, in the Mediterranean when the rains would come enough that the Hmm. rivers would swell and it wasn't safe to travel. You could get stranded. You would be crossing, wading through rivers on your day's walk between two towns. If you left too late in the fall and the rains came, suddenly uh, you would get caught by a flooded river. Paul mentions when he talks about all of his hardships in Second Corinthians, he says, I was constantly on the move. I was in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, danger in the country, danger at sea. I've gone without food. Well, why would Paul go without food? We think, well, that, that poor little town didn't feed him. He didn't no, have it, a Seven Eleven handy. Yeah, <laughs> it, it would be traveling. He'd be traveling. He would have taken supplies for the day. Probably they carry more than one day's supply. But he'd be caught by an unexpected flood, and he'd be on the riverbank waiting for the water to recede, and he'd go hungry. Mm. Um, bandits were still mm. dangerous on some mm. of the roads, mm-hmm. and Paul would occasionally take those roads. Okay, so traveling so, by land was dangerous. Okay, so... This is really interesting, and for a lot of our listeners, I'm sure this is, to some degree, new information. What's it have to do with letter writing? Well, (laughs) let me cover ships, too, and then we'll talk about letter writing. You say, well, if it's that difficult to travel by land, just go by sea. Well, uh, ancient people on their ships, I mean, on our little Bible maps, they draw from this city all the way across the Mediterranean to that city. They would follow the coastline, and they would anchor offshore every night because so long as you could see land, you were okay. So they generally cut through where they could see islands and land. But sailing season was when the wind was blowing from the southwest, from Africa up toward the northeast. So the wind would push them up toward Europe and Turkey, that sort of thing. That was... F- favorable winds when the wind shifted the opposite direction it was too dangerous to travel it would blow you out into the middle of the mediterranean and eventually against the reefs in africa and there are lots of shipwrecks to this day in that area so you didn't travel once the wind shifted well here's the problem 
in October, okay, when is the wind going to shift? In October. <laughs> October-ish. <laughs> yes. So do you take a ship or not? Well, you want to take the last one before the wind shift. Well, how do you know that? Mm -hmm. So lots of people would quit traveling in August, maybe early September. And when are the winds going to be favorable from then on? Well, mid-April, maybe. That's a long except time. Except the wind shifts. Yeah. And then, so, May. So most people only traveled late May, June, July, August. So they had a few months of set. Now, Paul pushed the windows, and that's why it says he was shipwrecked multiple times, because he would push the window. So for letter writing, this comes into play. We read the book of Acts. Paul's just traveling, traveling, traveling. We don't even read when he spends the winter somewhere. But he did. Luke usually marks it by just, they spent considerable time there. And then he goes on to the next town. Well, that was code for they spent the winter there. Well, those were also the times for writing a letter. You have time, you sit down, you write it. Where it matters to us is we talked about how Paul would go through drafts. You think, well, he can't wait for all these drafts. That takes time. He's got to get that letter off, you know. But in actuality, no, that carrier is not going anywhere until traveling season opens. Mm. And likely that carrier was not as brave as Paul. So he's not going to leave as early as Paul <laughs> would or travel as late as Paul would. So Paul has time, at least three months usually, maybe more, in which that'd be the perfect time to write a letter. Okay. When Paul talks about such and such prevented me from coming to you, and mm -hmm. sometimes he mm -hmm. references like God preventing, is there also like a play in there of weather and seasons and things like that as well? Or Well, <laughs> great point, Daniel. I think from Paul, if a logistic didn't work out, in his mind, God didn't allow mm -hmm. it. We know on the second missionary journey, he wanted to travel basically down to the coast, and then he was going to take a boat back. And it says the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow it. Right. Well, I think if it had been an angel with a flaming sword, that's the sort of thing Luke might have mentioned. So by just saying that, some logistical thing didn't work out. Mm -hmm. But then he decides to circle, make a big loop, which was a very safe way to travel in antiquity since they didn't have Google Maps. So you would just make a big loop and then eventually it'll get you back where you were going. So he's going to make a big loop through Turkey and come back around. But uh, what Paul may or may not have known was central Turkey was inhabited by Celts. So, I mean, you think, well, I think Celts are in Ireland. No, they had migrated down. And they didn't get along with folks real well. They didn't speak Greek, and they didn't like foreigners. So I think when Paul was trying to loop around, he couldn't find anybody that spoke Celtic that wanted mm. to go with them. And so the Holy Spirit did not allow them. Well, in Paul's mind, the Holy Spirit did not provide the logistics we need to make this part. So one of the lessons we get out of this is we think, well, there are logistical problems, legal problems, mm -hmm. county regulations, that sort of thing. Or there's things that God doesn't allow. But I think God is in all of these things working hmm. together. And so, you know, we make the joke, when God closes a door, look for a window. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. It actually comes from the reference in Acts where it says, God opened a door for us. Well, part of the way he opened the door was he didn't give them the means to travel into these other areas. And so eventually he opened a, a door for them. And I think there's a great point to be made in that. Yeah. And I think what's interesting too, as like we've talked through this whole series so far, is each of these things that may make us feel a little uncomfortable because of the way we've been used to reading it, these are the marks of authenticity that make it the real deal. That's good, Daniel. You know, yeah. like these are the things that if Paul had just whipped down a few things and mm -hmm. sent it, now scholars would be looking at it and be like, I don't know if this is legitimate. 
because that's not how letters were written or that's mm-hmm. not how the process was. Mm-hmm. The very fact that Paul was affected by weather, had to pause in some places, worked with other people, tested his material, you know, had people looking over his shoulder, had to use a secretary because his handwriting isn't as good as the secretary's and the secretary has better skills and ability. Like all of that actually makes it more authentic Mm -hmm. that what we're reading truly was a part of the ancient world of Paul's time versus some other thing that maybe we want a letter to be in the form we would want it or something like that, which is, I think, really, really interesting. And, you know, I kind of want to apply it to how our churches had to, and the big word was pivot after COVID or during COVID in order to deliver messages to people. I mean, it became impossible to gather together in person. And so we had to develop Zoom church and we had to, you know, send it out for people to watch later. And I know in Mm -hmm. our church, we took turns among our whole body, calling each member to check on them. You know, this resilience of how do you get the message out? And, you know, messaging had to be different and it had to be collaborative and it had to be communicated. So when you understand that letter writing was cultural and actually rooted in a specific time, and we honor that when we read these letters, it makes a great difference. Paul's a Galatian boy, you know, raised in Tarsus originally. Asia Minor is the area that he knows. It's pretty clear that's where he intends to work, and the Holy Spirit won't let him go to southeast Turkey. The Holy Spirit won't let him go into central Turkey. So he's forced down to the coast, where he's probably going to take a boat back to Antioch. And while he's there, He has the Macedonian vision that calls him over to Macedonia. I don't think Paul would ever have intended to do that. Mm -hmm. And yet, what a world it opened up. It's an essential piece. We think, of course, that had to happen. Well, we look at COVID and we see it as an interruption, something that happened. And yet it has opened a door. It has involved people in different ways. I think when we're following the Holy Spirit, we will see good that comes out of it. We're finding out that, like the Apostle Paul, some of the most significant things that happen in our lives are things you don't really plan for all that much, and that in the end, even our plans are subject to God's divine direction. We're exploring the subject of letter writing in the first century and what that was like. Different in many ways from the way we communicate today. A lot of our modern communication is completed through short messages online or via our smartphone. Some of the platforms even have character limits on that. Imagine Paul writing his letter to the Romans on Twitter. Well, Paul's letters actually were pretty massive in comparison to other letter writers in his day too. Long, by our standards, for mail and email and text communications, and seriously long for the ancient world they were written in. So what's the longest book that you've read? Hmm. Okay, in terms of fiction, mm-hmm. the longest book I've ever read was entitled Glastonbury by Donna Fletcher Crow, and it's brilliant. It's really long. It's about 900 mm. pages. Wow. The longest nonfiction book I, I think I've ever read was Richard Hayes' Reading with the Grain of Scripture, mm. which is just big. It's really big. <laughs> uh, some of us talk about this is an exhaustive work, and then we'll joke it was exhausting um, <laughs> as well to have read it. Yeah. Uh, the longest book, the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, sort of. Yeah. Um, but I, if we want other books uh-huh. as well, I feel like The Call of the Wild was pretty long. Mm. And then in seminary, 
there's all those introduction to theology or Gosh. introduction to, mm-hmm. you know, history of Christianity in North America and Canada. Those are giant books. Yes. And you'd have to read like 200 and some pages a day to get all the way through by the Where end of the semester you, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So the longest book I've read is Gone with the Wind. Mm. <laughs> so Mitchell. let me ask yeah. a different question. Yeah. What's the longest book you've heard read? Mm. The one that comes to mind is All the Light We Cannot See. Mm. And that one took quite a while. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's actually that long of a book, but listening to it, it took a long time. You know, it's funny to listen to any book. It takes a long, long time. As as Evan and I make a cross-country trip, and all of y'all have done this, you can put on just a normal novel or a normal book, and they're usually about eight to nine hours. American education stresses when you teach kids to read, first they read aloud, and then we teach them to not read aloud, but their lips are still moving. Right, right. And then we, you, then the little sweet primary teacher will tap their lips and try to teach them to read without moving their lips, because otherwise you can only read at the speed of speech. speech yeah. But in antiquity, they always read aloud. That's how mm-hmm. Philip knew what the Ethiopian eunuch uh, mm-hmm. was reading. Now, actually, mm-hmm. he probably had a reader that was reading it to him, but that was the way that reading was done. And so Paul's letters would be read in the church. In fact, they would write it from the viewpoint of the hearer. So when they would say greetings, in their mind, the greetings was done when the Mm -hmm. reader of the letter would say to them, I, Paul, send you greetings. They would think, wow, Paul just greeted me. This is great. So uh, Daniel had made the observation, really a keen observation, actually, the way Paul was writing, he said, gosh, this sounds more like the way you write a a book, multiple drafts, you would research, look things up that you wanted to quote, put things back in, go through multiple drafts. And then we talked about in traveling, the time they would normally write would be winter time Mm -hmm. when you'd have a three month stretch or so where nobody is going anywhere. So even if you wanted to dash something off, generally it wasn't available because nobody was traveling. So that brings up the question, well, was Paul writing letters or was he writing books? I think Paul's recipients thought the same thing. When (laughs) the Corinthian church got 1 Corinthians, their first shock would not have been what Paul said, but would have been the size of the letter. (laughs) It was one and a fourth the times of a normal roll of papyrus. So Paul's First Corinthians was a book, and that would have been the first thing they thought was the guy wrote us a book, and his opponents say Paul's letters are weighty, hmm. and they meant it with every bit of that heavy. pun. Actually, heavy. <laughs> the pun worked both ways, just like in English. They're hard to understand. They're weighty that uh-huh. way, but also they're just massive. Uh-huh. They're huge. So, as I mentioned before, most letters were shorter than Philemon. Your typical. Uh, letter in antiquity was shorter than flame and shorter than third john there were about 90 words is the average for it like a telegram (laughs) (laughs) they would have thought it was plenty (laughs) well you know to that point you know we're constantly going how do we make the gospel understandable and accessible in this generation you're saying this is so unusually long and weighty that kind of runs counterintuitive to what we might choose to do in order to share the gospel. But Paul knew they were long. He knew they were weighty and they were difficult to understand. Isn't that an interesting reality? Right. And I think his response to us, if we said, well, could you give me the Reader's Cliff Digest notes? version? Yeah. I think uh-huh. he'd say no. 
Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of time and energy writing these. You spend time and energy reading them. Well, and not only that, but, I mean, you think about the complexity of the ideas, and most of his letters are written to places where they didn't have a lot of Jewish background yep. to understand Old Testament stuff and things like that. And so there's a lot of stuff there to unpack. Right. So if the average letter was 90, the two great letter writers in antiquity were Cicero and Seneca. Cicero's average letter was 300 words. A Seneca, who's considered the great letter writer in antiquity, averaged about 1,000 words. Paul averaged 2,500 words. So he's way beyond anybody else in antiquity. So, you know, we'll say, well, Paul's letters were long. Paul's letters were unbelievably long. And Romans tips the scale at 7,000 words. Mm. So it's a massive piece. And not only are they long, they would have been expensive. Yeah, mm. I, was, I was wondering how much that would cost. Romans, in today's dollars... Um, by the time you hired the secretary and they charge you by the line, so every draft is going to cost you as well. I mean, not a lot, but it, it adds up. It would be over $2,000 in today's, hmm. today's dollars. So that's a lot of money. Now, letters in general were expensive, hmm. but when Paul decides to write these long letters to the churches, he'd have to have a sponsor. Yeah, I was going to say, would he go to a patron like Lydia yes. and say, I need to write Romans and... Right. They don't know anything, and I've got to try and tell them everything in one letter. And so I'm going to need you to help me fund that. You had been talking, Elisa, about how COVID has taught us as a church how to pull together. I think they would view this letter as a we. It's not just, oh, Paul has this pet project of writing to the Romans. Okay. They would say we, as a group, need to write to Rome so that they can help further Paul's uh, mission and further the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. So Paul wrote long letters, complicated letters, and expensive letters. And I think we need to keep that in mind, uh, longer than most. So when we feel intimidated by a Bible reading plan that says read 1 Corinthians, we feel intimidated by that. Well, we should take comfort. The Corinthian church felt intimidated a bit by it as well. <laughs> and they would have it read. They may have had it read in sections. Like a lot of us with audiobooks, we don't hear the whole nine hours at one setting. We, we hear it in snippets. We have it read again and again and again. And the churches valued these things. Hmm. The other thing that jumps out to me, too, is how slow and thoughtful the process has been, as you've described it up to this point, too. Like we, we just have such easy ways to send an idea to one another, mm -hmm. right? Like the first thought that comes in our head, we post it on social and think it's publishable or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, or we text each other quickly. And because of just how thoughtful and slow this process is, I think it's a good challenge and reminder to us too of just don't be quick to speak, but mm. sit on things at times, sit on it, let it marinate, talk to others about it. You know, do some research before you shoot it out there and put it as a social post on something. Um, um, imagine if we had to wait three months to send it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and as it relates to this conversation, how expensive these were. Imagine how it might change what we post if every post huh. on social we had to pay for it, pay a hundred uh -huh. bucks or a thousand bucks or something. Yeah. So the fact that not only was there so much time taken, so much thought taken. But then 
the church, that community that Paul was writing in was willing to spend money on mm-hmm. it to create it. That gives it so much more value too. I think that as we ponder how serious the letters are and how thoughtful they are, that we don't want to lose sight of just how blessed we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Timeless. Yeah, the the fact that these letters not only were meaningful then, but are super meaningful to us today and that they have stood the test of time, I think speaks not just to the process, but also to the Spirit of God working in the process to give us something that would last that long. Yeah. Let me come back to something Elisa said early in our conversations, was that, you know, we want to ponder every sentence. We want to delve into every phrase. We focus even on the individual words. Well, we've looked and said, you know, these merit that. Mm-hmm. They have been assembled so carefully. They merit that kind of attention. They deserve it, in addition to being the very words of God. So this has been very helpful, Randy, in really digging into how letters were written in ancient times, how Paul wrote his letters, the team focus, but the time, I mean, this mm-hmm. conversation we've been having about how long it took, how long the letters were, I'm still stuck on how does that make it better? <laughs> because <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm a fast person. Um, I mean, the negative part is I can be impatient and run ahead. But the good part is I get things done and we're what's next, you know, mm-hmm. and there's an urgency in, and I don't sense that in our conversation. And I know Paul was anxious and urgent for the gospel, but it just runs so counterintuitive to me. So help me with that. Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind, Daniel had been talking about tweets and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how we dash a thought out and send it off. And our Mm -hmm. first thought is, well, this is publishable right here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But imagine if we had to wait another month and a half before we could hit the send button Uh on that tweet. Well, my suspicion is it would get rewritten a few times. Or deleted. Or deleted. Or deleted. That's right. I mean, one of my rules is if I'm mad when I write an email, I don't send it that day. Uh-huh. And I don't send it till I'm no longer mad. And usually I don't end up sending it. Yeah. So yeah. I, have I, a, do th- I have a good example of that. Okay, I'm ready. I got let go from a job and I was really angry. But I also wanted to justify to the board of that company like what was going on. So I wrote a letter to them and I sent it to my mentor first. And he was like, I am so glad you wrote this do not send this. <laughs> and it never was sent. But it was the same kind of thing yeah. of like, by sitting on it a while, it was a great process of getting it on paper. Of course, it's easy for me. I've got pens and journals everywhere, mm-hmm. right, to write, unlike the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And I think of it too, Randy and Elisa and Daniel. I think of it too in terms of the book writing process. I mean, mm. first you submit an outline or a proposal, and then maybe that gets tweaked a little bit by whatever review board you're working with. And then you start actually writing the book, and then you have an editor or an editorial committee that you work with, and it goes through three or four iterations. Then it goes to typesetting, and then you see the typeset version of it to make sure everything got typeset properly. And it's, you know, a year, year and a half process. So all of a sudden, three months doesn't feel that long uh, (laughs) by that standard. Right. Well, uh, you remember they had to wait because of traveling season. Yeah. So even if Paul finished a drive and said, this is ready to go, in antiquity, they did not fold and seal the letter until the carrier was there because there was always a possibility 
some additional news would happen. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then uh, someone like Cicero, you would find it all the time where he would say, after finishing this letter, I got news that Caesar's daughter had died. Mm. Oh, how tragic that is, that sort of thing. Or since I finished the letter, I got news that this other thing happened. And so he would write some more on that. So it was very common. You didn't finish the letter until the carrier showed up at your place and it's time to send it. So at that point, you would sign the letter. For us, that means writing our name in cursive. Most of the world, they write their name in a distinctive way that is repeatable over and over and over again. So their signature always looks the same. (laughs) Ours, we think, kind of depends on how I wanted Uh to write it. But most of the world is always the same. In antiquity, they didn't write their name. They wrote some concluding phrase in their own handwriting. If you weren't very literate, you just wrote goodbye. If you were even less literate than that, you just wrote the first three letters of it, E-R-R, which was short for goodbye. Mm. If you could write a little more, then you would say, greet my mother or greet my, you know, whatever, send some greetings. If it was a little more official than that and you had a little more literacy, you would summarize the content of it so that it would indicate, yes, this is what I'm actually doing. A great example, a guy was buying a weaving loom and the secretary wrote, the loom is this big, so many cubits by this many and it's being sold for this price at the bank of whatever and and the buyer's name is this and the seller's name is this and at the bottom in the sender's name he says i'm buying the loom for 47 denarius and then that's his summary and that it functioned it validated it so we see in philemon paul picks up the pen in his own hand and he writes a few concluding words, including, hey, you owe me your very soul. So mm. when we do see <laughs> Paul pick up the pen, it tends to be a little firmer, which may give us a hint, a glimpse into Paul's uh, personality. But we find that in some of his other letters where the postscript has additional information. When Paul writes to Colossians, he's in prison. Well, that's the sort of thing most people wouldn't want word to get out. But to carry the letter may blab it anyway. Uh-huh. You know, that, yeah, hey, by the way, he's in prison. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of my chains. And so he says in his subscription, I am sending a Epaphroditus to tell you everything, including the fact that he's in chains. So he wants them to know, I'm, I really am not ashamed of my chains. And he sends personal greetings hmm. and those kinds of things. When you're finally done, there's usually some closing greeting. Paul says, greet one another in the Lord or greet one another with a holy kiss or some kind of thing like that. And then normally the letter would be folded like an accordion and then folded in half and tied. Paul's letters, because they were books, would be rolled like a book and then usually a string would be tied around them and then they'd be ready to be sent. In antiquity, a lot of people would put a date. Oh, wow, we wish Paul had put a date on his, but he doesn't bother. Yeah, quick question. So you mentioned him writing in prison. And the other description we were giving of letter writing was like out in a courtyard with people around and stuff like that. How would he be able to do that same process in a prison setting that happened in the courtyard? When he's in prison in Caesarea, Mm -hmm. he's stored in the barracks. The consensus of the Roman trial had been Paul has not done anything worthy of death or punishment. But there's politics going on. So Paul's been detained, but he would be kept in the barracks, somewhat we'd call like house arrest. And he'd have to pay for his own costs and stuff. So people are coming and going. So there would be Roman guards somewhat keeping an eye on them who'd get to hear about the letter being written. When Paul's in prison in Rome, he's also under house arrest in an apartment, a rented apartment. And so 
that's probably how the Praetorian Guard, he says in Philippians, mm-hmm. got to hear the gospel. They're hearing him write these letters and hearing him talk to people and all that. When he's finally put into a what they call a carcer, where we get the word incarceration, those are the harsh prisons that mm. you can imagine. That would have happened at the time he was writing like Second Timothy. And I think he would have had a secretary really take a role in that. Yeah, in the film Paul, Apostle of Christ, it's Paul in prison in Rome, and they actually bribe guards to sneak Luke in, and Luke yeah. writes the book of Acts based on Paul's stories there in prison. It's very interesting in the way that it sets it up because, again, it's exactly what you're describing. Paul's not sitting there writing stuff. He doesn't do anything until Luke shows up and, and they work on it as a team. I think Second Timothy probably was written that way. And it may very well have been Luke. But I would think Paul would talk to Luke about what he wanted to write. And then Luke may have gone home and gotten a secretary. And then he would bring a draft back for Paul to hear. You know, the question comes to mind, we're focusing so much on how the letter was sent and how much time went into its creation. And then you'd wait to the very last second to seal it, etc. How was a letter received? Well, let's talk about how it got there before okay. it was received. The Romans had a postal service, but only official Roman business was that way. And it worked a lot like our Pony Express did. They could cover 50 miles in a day, but only official Roman correspondence went that way. So everybody else would use somebody who happened to be going that way. I call them happenstance carriers. So someone's going somewhere. It actually generated a lot of letters in antiquity. Hmm. We have letters that say, because so-and-so was going, I thought I should greet Mm -hmm. you and tell you Mm -hmm. these things. When I worked in Indonesia as a missionary, when they would find out I'm going off to this village somewhere, the day before, people would all be dropping letters off with me. I'd have a sack of letters to go, and I'd hand them out, and they would ask, when are you leaving? I'd say, well, I'm leaving tomorrow after church. And so they would have letters to give back to me to to carry back. So um, that sort of thing happened. The problem with that is it wasn't always super reliable. That was one problem. Letters got lost. They never showed up, uh, that sort of thing. Also, whoever delivered the letter had no idea about the contents. And we see early on some of Paul's problems arose because people didn't understand what he meant by something. So he told the Corinthians, in my first letter, I told you not to associate with immoral people. Well, I didn't mean the world, you know. So, well, that's the sort of thing, if if it had been somebody involved in the writing of the letter, they would have known that. So yeah. I think as Paul started having trouble with forged letters, mm. which we hear about, and maybe letters that were lost and people misunderstanding his letters, he decided, I'm spending so much money on these letters, I'm going to pay the cost for someone to carry them. And so the wealthy people used dedicated carriers anyway, people that worked for them. FedEx. Right. <laughs> but so Paul would send a a member of the team to carry that yeah. letter. And you talked about, I think in the last conversation, Randy, how unusually long Paul's letters were. And so it wasn't like just slipping an envelope into into your bag or something to take. I mean, you're talking about a hefty a roll. piece yeah. of material. So it's a scroll, a roll, and they would carry it in a sack and they would bring it. And then that person would be expected to read the letter. And would and they gather? Yes, they they'd gather for a certain time. Probably a whole bunch say, of people. Let's read that. it right away, or would they wait for a? Well, I think they would want to make sure that everybody had an opportunity to come. So they might say next Thursday, okay, um, we're going to gather at this patron's house, and after the meal, we're going to hear from our brother Paul. And so that person would read the letter, and uh, since writing was continuous with no spaces, 
and they didn't divide its syllables. You know, it, it took a little bit of talent to read the letter. That may have been part of Phoebe's skill in carrying Romans, was that she may have been skilled at reading mm-hmm. them. And that person would be expected to answer all the questions and fill in the gaps and do all of that. So this person is a mm-hmm. part of the delivery of the, of the letter. That segment talking about the back end of the first century letter writing process, the sending and delivery and receiving part of the process were pretty important too. And of course, in the first century, that was different than it would be in our day. Well, in just a moment, Elisa and Bill and Daniel and Randy Richards will wrap up these conversations with more surprising discoveries about Paul, the letter writer. And the question they want to explore in that last segment is, how did these letters, you know, to churches or people in scattered locations around the Mediterranean, how did those letters get preserved? And one of the things I should mention is any manuscript we have of Paul's letters has a collected set. We don't have a single manuscript that's just one letter. Hmm. So how did they come to be collected? Well, that's what Randy helps us with after we take just a moment to look ahead to our next Discover the Word podcast. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Rasul Berry leads the group in a study called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 We're going to be spending the next few conversations really exploring when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray and the makeup of that prayer, how we can use it and apply it for our own lives today. Because prayer in a lot of ways is the most vital aspect of our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. It allows us to communicate, to express, to confess, to receive a sense of what he says is true about us and and really engage in in a way that's very dynamic. Yeah, Lord, teach us to pray on the next Discover the Word podcast. Now, we've been talking with author and scholar Randy Richards about Paul, the letter writer, in the last couple episodes of the Discover the Word podcast. And now in the concluding part of this conversation, Randy wants to talk about how the 13 or maybe 14 letters that are attributed to Paul, written to various locations around the Mediterranean, were collected and became what we have in our New Testament. And this part of the conversation is going to mention the role of something that has been called the most important advance in bookmaking before the invention of the printing press. And that was the gradual replacement of the scroll, you know, a long, rolled-up, continuous sheet, with what is called the codex, a smaller sheet stacked up and bound together. The spread of the codex is often associated with the rise of Christianity, which early on adopted the codex format for the Bible. And so let's listen as Randy Richards talks about how copies of Paul's letters were preserved as we wrap up this study of Paul, the letter writer, on the Discover the Word podcast. 
Well, Randy Richards, as always, it's been delightful having you with us. You're so much fun yeah. to be with. Mm-hmm. And, and you always bring to us and to our listeners fresh perspectives that just help us to love and appreciate the scriptures even mm-hmm. more. Yeah, I would agree with that. Sometimes questions get raised and it unsettles you. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things I always appreciate about the way that you lead us through is there's just a confidence that you bring with you, raising the right questions to unsettle us in the right ways, but not to cause us to question things that are important and that we value. So thank you for that. That's well put. Um, I, I so appreciate your energy and your passion. I love how you pop us to look at scripture. It's, you know, it's a different lens mm-hmm. to look through it. Okay. So I don't know where you want to take us on this last one, but there's something I've been dying to ask mm-hmm. you about. In Second Timothy 4, we believe Paul's final letter, Yes, as he's there in prison awaiting execution, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, when you come, bring with you the books and the parchments. And my coat. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little cold <laughs> here in the prison. I could use my coat. But especially the books and the parchments, it's, I'm wondering what he might have been referring to specifically there. What do you think he's talking about? Well, um, I want to answer your question, Bill, but I want to back it up and do it through a, a Daniel question. He'd been you know, curious about how all this comes together. Elisa had asked this as well. Well, we have a set of Paul's letters. Paul wrote a letter to Rome. He wrote a letter to Galatia, which is by road about 2,000 miles away. Mm-hmm. He wrote probably at least four letters to Corinth, of which we have two. So he's written 13 letters to at least 10 different locations. So how did all these scattered letters become a collected set of Paul's letters? And one of the things I should mention is any manuscript we have of Paul's letters has a collected set. We don't have a single manuscript that's just one letter. Hmm. So how did they come to be collected? Well, an old Chicago scholar had argued that, you know, Paul says to the Colossians, be sure to get a copy of my letter to the Laodiceans you know, and have that read and have this letter read. So he's already anticipating that other churches would enjoy these letters. Mm. So the argument was churches did enjoy them. And a church who had the letter to Corinth heard, what, he wrote a letter to Rome? We should get a copy of that. And so gradually churches started gathering up copies. I nicknamed it the old snowball theory, like a snowball rolling down a hill. Mm -hmm. Just your collection kept getting bigger over time until by, say, the year 200, which is our oldest manuscript of Paul's letters. By then, it's it's a set of letters. The problem we have with that is if that happened, we should have manuscripts that are pieces. Yeah. And we don't. We have no manuscript evidence that there was ever a gradual collection of Paul's letters. So scholars noticed that. And so somebody came along later and said, no, what happened was somebody went out and collected them. Hmm. So Acts got people interested in Paul's letters eventually. And we do know that from history. People weren't interested in his letters early on. Hmm. They got interested in Paul. Wow, this guy's pretty amazing. We should get his letters. Hmm. And so someone went around and collected them. Hmm. somebody some event caused them to want to have Hmm. paul's letters those were the two prevailing theories until about 20 years ago when i suggested a third and that is when i looked at how seneca's letters were published how cicero's letters were published they were published from the author's personal set of copies 
So that made me go do some more research, what personal said. Mm. And what I discovered was ancients kept a copy of their letters. When you were hiring a secretary, one of the things you had them do is you had them write eventually a nice draft. Then you'd either have them write it from wax tablets into your notebook. And these writers would keep a notebook of letters. And then they would do a polished draft on nice papyrus and good handwriting that you would send because, you know, you wouldn't want to send some rag to mm-hmm. Corinth, particularly if you're spending that much money and that much time. Mm-hmm. And so they would make a nice draft to send. But the notebook, that term, they would call it membranes, membrani, membranes. Mm-hmm. They'd be made out of leather Technically, they were erasable to some extent, but they weren't considered published form. You wouldn't, they, they were in the form of a, what we'd call a book with a binder and uh-huh. leaves. And for them, that wasn't a, an official book form. An official book form was a scroll. So they would refer to them as notebooks, and they weren't for official things, but they would use them for notes and for copies of letters. Hmm. And so we know that they kept copies of their letters We have lots of references to other writers who kept copies of their letters. Alexander the Great got mad one time and burned the tent down of his secretary. And then somebody pointed out, those were all of your letter copies. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So then he had the secretary write letters to all of his recipients to send back a copy of his letters Hmm. so that he would have a copy of his letters. So people (laughs) kept things. We have comments where Cicero would say, you didn't get my letter? Well, I have a copy at home. I'll send you another. So they retained copies. So we think Paul kept copies of most of his letters. You say, well, why wouldn't you keep all of them? Well, sometimes you weren't writing in the wintertime. You were writing more of a spontaneous Mm -hmm. and a a Lisa response where I want to send this (laughs) off in a hurry. Someone is leaving right away. So you would get a letter sent and you didn't have time to make a copy. We think that's what happened with Corinth, with the two letters that we lost. Both of those were in urgent situations. I think that Paul didn't have time to make a copy of them. Mm. But when he would respond later, he'd have time. He'd keep a, a copy. So God in his wisdom I think he superintended which letters Paul had an opportunity to keep a copy of. So when Paul is arrested, I think he was arrested at Troas, um, probably because he was waiting on a, a boat. So he'd booked passage. He's on the run. At this point, Christianity's illegal. So now he's he really is guilty. When he was arrested before by Rome, he was innocent. So that's why I don't think he mm-hmm. was worried about it. But now... Nero has changed his tune about Christianity. Christianity is illegal. Paul's very guilty of that. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to deny it. Yeah. So he knows if I'm caught by Rome, I'm done. So I think he's planning on fleeing out maybe back to Spain or something. And so he tells Titus in his letter to Titus, meet me in Nicopolis. Well, Nicopolis was just a port city, a great place to catch a boat if you're sailing out mm-hmm. west, mm-hmm. like to Spain. I don't think Paul ever got there. Because he says, I left these things Mm -hmm. in Troas like a coat in his books, things he wouldn't have left on purpose. And he says then, Alexander the metalsmith did me great harm. Mm -hmm. I think Alexander's the one who ratted him out to Mm -hmm. the Romans. So Paul's arrested. He's not able to go back and get his stuff, and he wants them. So I think the only set of Paul's letters was his personal set, which he had in Rome. Say, well, why does this really matter? Well, it's interesting. Second Peter written by Peter, we think, in Rome, mentions Paul's letters are difficult to understand. (laughs) Well, there are a lot of scholars, I would say, have to say the majority of New Testament scholars reject Peter as having written 2 Peter. And one of the main arguments is 
there would not have been a set of Paul's letters in Rome that early. Well, I've gone back and argued there was probably the only one, but there was hmm. one. One last comment related to that. Every known manuscript, New Testament manuscript, is in that codex, that book form, not a roll form. Christians were the first ones to adopt that codex, that where you have leaves of mm -hmm. paper. And they've always argued, why would Christians adopt it? And they've come up with all kinds of theories. I don't think any of them are very good. I think it's because the first copy they had of anything was Paul's letters, and they were in a notebook form because that's the way you kept a copy. So when somebody said, I'd like a copy of that, the scribe just made a copy just like the one he had. Hmm. And so it wasn't a deliberate adoption of this mm. form. It was happenstance. I don't think Christians were sitting around trying to think, you know well, what, what we new should tradition do? we should <laughs> yeah, do. You know, right. I think it was, they were in the crucible of ministry work. Yeah. They were pressed on all sides. They were extremely pragmatic. And so they would pay to get a copy made when they could afford it. And they had a set made. So Randy, as you've led us through so many different ideas, and seriously, thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. If there's one thing that we walk away from as we think about Paul and his letters, what is that one thing that you're hoping that changes how we see these letters? I think that the letters are from Paul and company, and he spent a lot of time and energy carefully writing these letters. And so when as a pastor, you write and rewrite and take notes and work on your sermon. You're not cutting the spirit out when you do that. There's this idea sort of that if it's really inspired, it's just right off the cuff. Mm. It's spontaneous. And I think, no, the spirit wants us to put in our part of the hard work to make something of quality. Mm. Thanks for being with us mm. again. It's great to have you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for so inviting good. me. That is how the Discover the Word team wraps up our two-episode study called Paul, the Letter Writer. Lisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day have been your study partners alongside author and scholar Randy Richards. As they said, always so great to have Randy with us. Uh, we learn so much, and it's always just so comfortable to have Randy here at the table with us. Hope you enjoyed our time talking with him about first-century letter writing as much as we did. And remember, if this topic has captured your interests like it has captured ours, I'd recommend that you check into getting a copy of Randy's book on this subject called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. It's published by InterVarsity Academic, and uh, we have a link to it on our discovertheword.org website. Or if you don't see it there, you can just go to whatever online bookseller you normally use and uh, get a copy. Now, as you know, Randy has done great work in the area of helping Christians not misread their Bibles because they're reading it with exclusively 21st century Western culture eyes. And this book helps us take another step in the right direction. Randy opens up a lot of what that first century process of letter writing was like that informs how we read the letters, many written by Paul, that make up such a significant part of our New Testament. I encourage you to get a copy of Paul and New Testament Letter Writing by E. Randolph, Randy Richards. Because here at Discover the Word, it is our goal to help you gain a deeper understanding of the Bible. That's why we welcome guests like Randy Richards to join the team and share their unique knowledge and insights with you. But we couldn't do this without you. We are a listener and reader-supported ministry. And so please consider partnering with us financially you can give when you go to discovertheword.org and click the Donate tab. There. 
Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.